Good morning, everyone. It's so good to have you here today. When I was uh, in grade 11, I had a teacher. His name was Mr. Demetrician. I don't know his first name, but uh, I know that his last name was Demetrician. And in fact, uh, we gave him uh, a nickname. We called him Demolition Demetrician. And uh, I think you could probably figure out why we would call him that. Uh, he's the only teacher in all my years in high school that uh, would throw a piece of chalk at, at somebody if they weren't paying attention. And if they were acting up, he would pick up the chalk eraser and chuck that at you. So um, I thought maybe I'd try that this morning. No, I won't do that. He was the, uh, this is going to sound strange, but he was actually the best teacher, one of the best teachers I ever had. And uh, he was one of those guys that, that went around and he looked like he always was angry. It, in fact, it turns out he wasn't angry. It was just his face. He couldn't help it. And um, uh, when, he, when he laughed, it was really actually very unusual. In fact, it was so unusual when he smiled or laughed that everybody laughed and smiled along. Uh, maybe out of sheer relief, I don't know. But uh, an interesting teacher. I'll tell you why. Because he was one of those teachers that never accepted uh, excuses. You could, never, you could never come to class without your homework done. Um, no one dared miss a class. He was one of those teachers that didn't allow you to daydream in his class. And um, when he called you to the blackboard, remember those days? I don't know if there's still blackboards in school. Green boards or white boards. When he called you to the blackboard to do an equation, I'm going to tell you it was with fear and trembling and with the most incredible focus and clarity of thought that you went to that board. He meant business. And uh, I didn't just learn to do equations in that class. I actually learned how to think mathematically. It was, it was a brilliant teacher, but it was a teacher that meant business. Why? Because he was one of those teachers that just would not put up with any baloney. Anybody know what I'm talking about? He had the no baloney rule. And he could smell baloney a mile away. <laughs> and so he's one of those teachers that when you came to his class, you paid attention and you learned. And those kids that normally got away with, with all kinds of stuff in other classes, in his class, they were always the model students, interestingly. Now, the interesting thing about James... I didn't, we didn't, you didn't come here this morning to hear about demolition, demetrician. But the interest, interesting thing about James is I picture him as one of those kinds of teachers. A teacher that really meant business. He wasn't fooling around. He could smell baloney a long way off. He knows a hypocrite when he sees one or hears one. And this whole letter that he's written to us is a no baloney rule letter. He's saying, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, then you're going to have to get serious about it and do it the way that the Bible tells you to follow him. He's not putting up with baloney. So this whole letter, this whole book that we call James, calls us to drop the deceptions, the self-deception and, the, and, the, and the, the notion that somehow we could deceive God or make God uh, think that we're really on fire for him, but meanwhile, our heart's far away. How many know that you can't deceive God? And yet so often, we live as though we could. 
If you're going to call yourself a Christian, James says, then you better be one. He's speaking to believers here. Now, he's not speaking to people who are not Christians. He's not speaking to people who, you know, who've been in church all their life or have been religious all their life, but haven't really made that, that final step, that commitment where, where they say, Lord Jesus, I'm accepting you as my, my Lord. I'm accepting you as, your, as my Savior. I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. He's concerned about the believers here. This is, this is who this letter is addressed to, to people who call themselves Christians, to people who, who say they understand it, that they're following Christ. Now, there's an old-fashioned uh, religious practice. Um, we don't hear it used too much nowadays or mentioned too much nowadays, but it's, it's a practice that we call personal revival. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. But James goes through his letter, and he shows us our inconsistencies. He shows us those places where we've been hypocritical, those places where we've acted it but haven't really had our heart in it. And he says, it's time now for all of us to experience something of a personal revival. And so I want to share this passage of Scripture for you, or with you, from James chapter 4, verse 8. And it says, come close to God, and God will come close to you. Now, can I just remind everybody of something right now? Because I know a lot of people have this notion, um, especially people who, who don't have a faith in Christ. They'll sit back and say, well, I'm just waiting for God to do something and for God to reveal himself. But can I just remind everybody of something right now? That's not how God works. You've got to make a step towards him. And you've got to keep pressing in and keep working on it until you get to that place where your heart actually connects with God. And here's what God says. God will come close to you. So you come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, James says. Wash your hands, you sinners. I tell you, this guy means business. Demolition, demetrician here. He's not mincing words here. No niceties. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. What does he mean by that? Simply this. He's saying, well, on the one hand, you want to follow Jesus. On the one hand, you say you want to be a Christian. On the other hand, you actually love the ways of this world more than you love the ways of God. And I don't think I need to do a mini sermon here in the middle of my sermon to explain that to you. You understand that our culture is very much diametrically opposed to the ways of God. So he says, your loyalty is divided between God and the world. So he sets the problem out before us. He shows us what's, what the problem is with all of us. And then he shares with us a solution in James chapter 4, verse 9. And, and it says, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Now, you look at that verse, it sounds awfully gloomy, doesn't it? And some of you may be thinking, well, hey, hold on a minute here. I thought that Christianity was supposed to be full of joy and happiness all the time, right? Okay, look at If you're thinking of Christianity as merely a religious system, then I could see how you'd think that. But here's what you and I need to understand today. We're talking about a relationship with God. And you've heard me say this time and again, that Christianity is all about relationship with God, isn't it? 
It's all about relationship with one another. What kind of relationship? Loving relationship. So stop and consider this for a moment. You need to understand your faith. You need to understand what it really is. It's not just a a list of do's and don'ts and be like this and don't be like that. We're talking about a relationship with God. It's not mechanical. It's a relationship of love. I was uh, at St. Benedict's Retreat Center back uh, about a year ago, and I was there for a, a retreat for several days. And one evening, the Buddhists, some Buddhists, in Winnipeg, they rented out part of the facility. And I happened to be in the library where they were meeting, but I didn't know that. And these Buddhists, who I expected to be sort of, you know, that, that transcendental, um, like that, kind of, you know, calm and peaceful and full of, full of I don't know what, joy, and kindness, they walked in there, and they took a strip off me. They didn't say, hi, how are you? Uh, Why are you in this room? They just took a strip off me. They came in here, and they they came in accusing and saying, you got to get out of here. This room is rented by us. This belongs to us. And a whole string of, I mean, I didn't get a chance to even say a word. But I walked out of that room, and I, I scratched my head, and I thought, wow, so that's what Buddhists are like. Now, don't get too uppity. Because, folks, too often we as Christians don't really demonstrate and live out and reveal the faith that we say that we're practicing. Folks, for Christianity, love is the rule. And it's supposed to characterize every believer in what he says and what he does. Jesus says people will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Now, understand something about your faith right now. This faith that we call Christianity is a faith that is supposed to be all about love. And I'm going to say that Christianity will make absolutely no sense to you if you don't understand that. Everything in the Old Testament, the very laws that God gave through Moses, are all about how to love God and how to love each other. Did you know that? It wasn't just a list of do's and don'ts. It was directives. It was guidance on how to properly love each other, how to properly respect one another. The Ten Commandments. The first few few commandments are all about how to love God. The rest are all about how to love each other. This is what your faith is about. When Jesus came to this earth, we call that what? Christmas. When Jesus came to this earth, it was about love. All of his teachings, you start reading the Sermon on the Mount. I've asked you to do that, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's all about how to love each other and how to love God. Jesus' death on the cross is all about love. His resurrection, it's all about love. And the sending of his Holy Spirit to help us, it's all about his love for us. The church, in case you didn't know it, is a place where you and I learn how to love each other and how to love others. Can I just remind everybody today that by nature, you and I do not know how to love people? 
You are not born with the ability to naturally love people. Oh, yes, yes, I know what you're thinking. Well, you know, my kids love me, and I love my kids, and I would die for my kids. I'm not talking about that natural inborn love, that instinctual love. I'm talking about a love for people when they diss you. I remember Nicholas. Anybody remember Nicholas, my son, who's in Bible school? And I miss him so much. I remember having my very first battle with him. And I told him that, I told him he was not supposed to do something. I don't remember the details around it, but I remember the confrontation, the showdown. And I said, Nicholas, you can't do that. I got right down on his face, right eye to eyeball, mano, mano. And he slapped me across the face. And then he smiled, which made it worse. <laughs> I said, Nicholas, you can't do that. And I slapped him back. I mean, not too hard. <laughs> but I, he, he knew that he's not allowed to do that. And you know what he did? He slapped me back. And you know what I did? I slapped him back. We had this little showdown until finally he gave in. Now, I'm going to tell you, in those moments, when your kids are slapping you across the face and treating you badly, when your spouse isn't treating you the way you think that they should be treating you, when the people at work are saying things about you behind your back and you know it, folks, it's that time that you and I are called as Christians to demonstrate our love. And I'm going to tell you right now that unless the Holy Spirit enables you and helps you to love at that time, you can't do it. Folks, that's what sets Christianity apart from Buddhism and every other religion. Your faith is all about love. Now listen to me. Jesus promised us that when he left this earth, he would send the Holy Spirit to help us. Listen, this is, this is so cool. This is Christianity, folks. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us and enables us to love people who are not necessarily lovable. Do you hear what I'm saying? Folks, that's the sign, that's the evidence that you are a believer, that you have love in your heart. Now, I wish I could stop there and say, okay, you get it? Now go do it. But here's the problem. Most of us understand this, and most of us struggle with it. Boy, it's, it's, so, it's so tempting. It's so tempting to get even, isn't it? It's so, it's so tempting to say something that would just stick them back and, and make them know that they hurt your feelings. Let them know. Make sure that they're hurt in return. And the fact is, folks, is that each and every one of us is guilty of not loving the way God has called us to love. God repeatedly, repeatedly compares our relationship to him with the relationship between a man and a woman. Now, you need to understand this. You need to understand how God sees us. We are his children. We are his wife. He uses all sorts of metaphors to help us understand that it is a love relationship we have with God. Now, for so many of us, we see God as some sort of a, a distant, uh, inaccessible 
sort of deity in the sky. I don't know who he is or why he's there, but he's there. And you got this notion that he's ready to pounce on you every time you make a mistake. That's not God. The God that we have is a God that, that wants relationship with us, that wants to walk with us, that wants to enjoy our fellowship with us, and wants us to enjoy our relationship with him. Now, I don't know how many of you have read the Old Testament, but if you've read through the prophets, you know that there are some pretty explicit parts there. And in the prophets, the prophets describe the unfaithfulness of Israel to their God. And the prophets use language like you're acting like prostitutes, you're unfaithful, you're committing adultery, you're promiscuous. Why? And it's what you got to get. It's because the love that you and I experience with God is so precious that it is like the love between a man and a woman. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Let the Spirit of God speak to your heart. We've got some husbands and wives sitting here today. Husbands, how would you feel if your wife cheated on you? Ladies, how do you feel if your husband has cheated on you? You understand the suffering that I'm talking about. You're understanding the pain and the sorrow that I'm talking about. Folks, it's that kind of pain and suffering that God feels when we are unfaithful to him. When we would rather follow the ways of the world than follow him. Especially considering that God has proven to us and shown us time and again that his way is far superior to the ways of this world. After considering all he's done for us, God sees us as his beloved. That's the language, my beloved. And when you let God down, when you fail God, when you are not close to God, it's like a knife in the heart of God. Has anybody ever heard of David, King David? David was a shepherd boy. You know the story. The back, backsides of Israel. And suddenly, God, who's had enough with the present king, King Saul, says, to Samuel, Samuel, go and anoint a new man to be the next king. And you know the story. Samuel goes to the home of Jesse and finds David and anoints him to be king. Nothing happens immediately, but events occur, and then finally David is brought before the king, and he hears that there is a, a giant who is defaming and profaning God and the people of Israel and David says let me fight him and Saul you know laughs at him and says well you're just a boy you're just a kid out of the backsides of Israel what are you talking about you can't take on that giant and you know the story he does and then you know the story about how David becomes a threat to the king and now he is running for his life and he's hiding in caves, hunted by the king and his men. And David never 
ever rejects God, never walks away from God, stays faithful to God, writes psalms, many of the psalms in the Old Testament written by this man, David. And David finally comes to the throne and he gets distracted. Now, can I just tell you something right now? Nobody just gets distracted overnight. Things begin to happen in David's life. He's got it good. He's in a sitting in his royal palace. He's got servants. He's the king. He's wealthy. Life was good for David. Life has never been so good. And his eyes fall upon a beautiful woman within eyesight. And he uh, lusts after her. Next thing you know, he gets one of his trusted servants to bring this woman to his bedchamber and he commits adultery and this relationship now that he has with this woman this adultery gets him into trouble he gets her pregnant what's he going to do well he knows what he's going to do he's going to call his his this He's going to call Bathsheba's husband home from from war and he's going to try to get him to sleep with her so that he will think that the baby is his. But Uriah, being an honest man, a godly man, a man of principle and integrity, says, I can't sleep with my wife while my fellow soldiers are out fighting. And he refuses to sleep with his wife. And now David's got another problem. He's got a mistress who's pregnant. Her husband will not sleep with her because he's a man of integrity. How inconvenient. And he sends Uriah back with a note for the general. And in that note, David tells the general, put Uriah in the front lines so that he'll be the first one to be killed in battle. Now this is David, King David, who knew the anointing of God the man who writes all these psalms, the man who's called a man after God's own heart. He's committed adultery, he's lied, and now he has committed murder. Now here's the thing. When it finally all comes out, when the truth is known, David falls on his face before God. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. He falls on his face before God. And listen, listen to what he says. Psalm 51, verse 4. He says, against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. Now, can I just remind everybody of something today? Do you know that all relational sin, whether it's against your wife or your children or your workmates or your neighbors or your friends, all relational sin is against God. And it shuts down your relationship with him. And David understood that. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done evil in your sight. Now, folks, listen to this. David knows that he has broken his relationship with God. This morning, if, uh, 
If the Spirit of God is dealing with you and poking your own heart, I want you to know something. God loves you and wants you to get your life back on track. It's time for a personal revival. Listen, if our faith is about relationship, or a right relationship with God and with one another, what happens when we fail? What do we do? James puts to rest the idea that you can be a Christian or become a Christian and yet continue in your sin. You can't do that, folks. You can't continue to live in your sin and call yourself a Christian. It doesn't work. Why? Because we're talking about a relationship with God. We're not talking about religion. We're not talking about religious activity here. We're talking about relationship. This idea that you can just go on living any way you want and call yourself a Christian. It's what demolition demetrician would call baloney. It's what James calls baloney. Such faith, James says in James 2.19, is shared by the demons who believe and tremble. Think about your own heart this morning. You say you believe, but it is, is it producing a repentance that James shares with here in verse 9? Let's be honest. We all know when we're doing something wrong. You don't need to call the pastor to find out. And believe me, I get lots of phone calls like that. Why don't you need to call the pastor? I'll tell you why. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit who is poking you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That poking of the Holy Spirit? When I worked for my dad, when I wasn't doing something right, he'd give me a poke. My brother Joff's here. He knows what I'm talking about. Poke right in the shoulder. You know when you did something wrong. The Holy Spirit's poking you, and he won't let you off the hook. No peace. That sense of guilt. I'm not doing what I should do. I'm not living the way I need to live. Chris, would you come to the piano, please? I want, you, I want us to, to take a few moments before we leave here this morning to think about the condition of our own heart. Because even as I speak this morning, I know this. I know that the Holy Spirit is dealing with all of us. And he's revealing to us things in our lives, lives that are not right. Ways that we failed God by maybe failing our kids, failing our neighbors, failing the people around us. You know. You've got a, a massive grudge that you're holding. You're angry at the world. You're angry at your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your kids. You're mad at everybody. And God says you can't go on like that. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. So what do you do if you're feeling guilty? And what do you do to get your peace back? You know that peace? What do you do to... Get back on fire for God again. You remember being on fire for God, don't you? When you first became a Christian, wow. And you've allowed unbelief 
to fill your hearts. You've allowed yourself to drift away from God. You've allowed yourself to give up on that relationship with God. I got an email from Mark this past week saying, hey, this is a serious topic. Uh, uh, what should we do? I wanted to know about what to do with the laughter bit because we kind of like to add a bit of laughter to the service. And I said, well, we can't be laughing all the time. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. James tells us to stop and reflect and think about our lives. What's going on? What's going on in your heart? The Holy Spirit's been dealing with you. You know it. There's things in your life right now that are not right, and you know it. There's, there's paths that you're taking you know are not pleasing to God. God can't walk with you down that path. You know it. You're holding on a grudge right now. The truth be known, you hate that person so much you could kill him. You could kill her. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Think about where you're at right now. Are you happy about your spiritual direction? Are you happy about where you're at? Do you feel a depression and a heaviness because you know that guilt just seems to be crushing you? Are you living a self-centered life? Have you let yourself down? you let your wife down, your husband, your kids down? Have you let them down? Have you let God down? David understood that he let down his God. And folks, listen to this. Whenever we let God down, we inevitably let down everybody else. When you let down God, you let your kids down, your wife, everybody. You let them all down. And that's why you need to get your life right with God. Because when your life is right with God, and when you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you become the best husband there is, the best wife there is. You become the best employee, the best servant of God. I know for myself what makes me be the best kind of pastor I can be is making sure that my life is right with God. You know what? All this is just spiritual mumbo-jumbo if we fail to recognize that we're talking about a relationship with God. Let's face it. When we're guilty... No amount of amusement, no amount of laughter, no amount of hobbies or entertainments can take away the guilt and the heaviness that we feel. Why don't you stop masking it today? Why don't you stop trying to be distracted from your guilt and give in and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I've drifted away from you. I've forgotten about you. God, I've become cynical and I no longer see your hand at work. God, forgive me because I recognize that at the end of the day, you love me.
I want to close with some good news this morning. The next verse, verse 10, which is not on the screen this morning, I'm going to read it to you. It says this. If you let there be tears, and if you let sorrow and deep grief fill your heart for where you're at, if you let sadness into your heart instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy, Listen to what James says in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. What does that mean? It just simply means coming to God and saying, God, I'm sorry. I failed you. I failed my wife. I failed my kids. I As David said, against you and you alone have I sinned. I know the situation you're facing may be almost unbearable at times, but here's what I know. I know that God will bring you through because he loves you. Dealing with temptation and struggles, you're not supposed to do it alone. I got a fantastic card this past week, a thank you note, just helping one of our young people go through a difficult time in their life. And he just said, thank you so much for holding me accountable. You're not doing it alone, you're doing it together. I love the family of God. I love God's people. They're doing it together. So humble yourself. And he will lift you up in honor. Folks, when you do that, then you can laugh. Then you can rejoice. Then you can sing for joy. Because you made your heart right with God. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. As Chris plays gently in the background, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer this morning. It's a prayer of repentance. Because I would like everybody to leave here today right with God. I'd like everyone to leave today free of the guilt that's been plaguing you. I'd like to see you back on track. Is your pastor that loves you and cares for you and prays for you? I want to see you truly joyful and happy. So if you'd like, you can pray along with me. Lord Jesus, say it, go ahead, say it out loud. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I've stumbled in the filth of this world. I've hung on to my anger and remained unforgiving. I've allowed my secret sins to rule my life. I have failed you. And I have failed to love you. Please wash me clean. And help me to obey you. Thank you for forgiving me. And for taking away my sin. Father, thank you for your word this morning that instructs us. Sometimes 
it is a, a heavy topic that we need to look at. But God, we know that these times are reflection and quietness. When we think about our own lives, that's God when we begin to really grow and develop and mature. Thank you this morning for hearing our prayer, God. And I thank you, God, for the promise in your word that says that if we confess our sins to you, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now help us go from this place, God, as people committed to loving the people in our lives, no matter how difficult they are. Help us to really love them. And so, God, that they would know we love them. And help us, God, to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Give us a desire, Lord, to please you, to please you alone. And we thank you today, God, for your forgiveness and for your love. And we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me. Tell the person beside you, God really loves you.